Welcome to another virtual author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen special guest author is Megan Chance, whose new book is A Dangerous Education. Before we begin today, I'd like to let those listening in know that the Poison Pen does have copies of A Dangerous Education on order, and we would be happy to hold one for you at the store or put one in the mail. Just give us a call at the Poison Pen or go online to our website. Now I would like to welcome one of my favorite authors, Megan Chance. Hello, nice to be here. Lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself before you became a published author? Uh, let's see. Well, I had always wanted to be a writer, but I took a break uh, and got a, broad, uh, a degree in broadcast communications. And so I ended up, I think just because the job was available, I ended up being a television news photographer oh. for, you know, about, I don't know, six years or something. Um, and that was, you know, uh, an interesting job, you know, it was like a full-time, very full-time kind of job, but it was, it was a great job for a writer because you end up seeing people both sort of at their best and their worst. And, um, so it was a, it was a great opportunity to sort of, you know, gather things for, uh, you know, for research or whatever you want to call it. And uh, so I did that for uh, about six years before I realized that, you know, it was it was so it was such an overwhelming job. I mean, it was 40 hours a week, plus it was probably 40 hours of overtime. You just had no time to do anything else. And you were eating, breathing and sleeping it. So I I wanted to write. So I quit and I took a job as a waitress. Um, <laughs> I know, wild, huh? Except that's where I met my husband, who yeah. was um, working because he was planning to go to law school, oh. and um, so uh, so that worked out really <laughs> well, actually. And uh, then I uh, I started working for a commercial photographer um, as his studio manager while I was uh, trying to be published. And it took me, I think, uh, from the time I decided, well, I want to be published. And uh, I want to write books for a living. It took me uh, eight years and six manuscripts, six full manuscripts. Yeah. yeah. And I was agented that whole time. Um, it just it just took that long. Um, you had mentioned that you had thought about being a writer early on when you were younger. And you actually, in high school, if I understand correctly, you had some writing courses or writing instruction. Yeah. I was I was really lucky. I actually didn't realize at the time how lucky I was, but I had a lot of support. Um, when I was in high school, my uh, English teacher uh, set me up as an with an independent study with a published writer in Olympia, which is where I went to high school. And I would go study with her like once a month. And she taught me um, she was she was hard on me, you know, she was not easy. And, you know, and I was young and I thought, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> she, she hates everything I do. But that wasn't true. I learned uh, so such an enormous amount from her. Um, and it was really at the time I didn't just didn't realize how unusual it was. Um, but, yeah, I um, I was really, really lucky. I had a lot of support, which was wild because, you know, no one in my family had was a writer or you know my my dad wrote but he was a he was a PhD you know he was a professor Academic, yeah and um 
you know, no one had ever written fiction or had knew anything about it. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty, it wasn't until much later that I went, wow, that was weird. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it helped shape the writer you became. You mentioned that it took, um, you were not an overnight success. There was many years involved, um, manuscripts that didn't make it to the published stage. I think today, sometimes people don't realize that back when you were getting your start, it was different. You didn't have the option of indie publishing or all these other, it was traditional publishing. And that was sometimes a difficult um, path to navigate. Um, your first book came out in 1993, is that correct? Yeah, 1993. Candle, Candle in the Dark. Can you tell us how that book came into publication? Uh, you know, it was back when, you know, when traditional publishing was really the only way to go. Um, and I think at the time, genre publishing uh, was kind of the easiest way in. And I had decided uh, that, you know, I liked romance and I liked reading it. And I thought, well, this is, you know, what I, what I want to do. And interestingly, I had gone to see a movie called, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it now. It was Joe Beth Williams. And she was an author who got a, she was, she had a, got a concussion and went to Paris and thought she was an author. I wish mm. I could remember the name of it now, not off the top of my head. I so went to see it with my sister mm. and, uh, and I was like, oh, I've always, you know, I had wanted to write a book about a, a priest who fell in love. And then mm. birds came out and blew that, that <laughs> idea out of the water, you know? And, um, and my sister said, you know, well, you should do it. Just go for it. Mm -hmm. And and sort of romance was a likely way. And there was a romance uh, Writers of America chapter uh, nearby where I was. And so I joined it and, you know, kind of ended up with the most supportive mm -hmm. group of writers that I possibly could have imagined. I learned so much, you know, and they were so welcoming and you know, the thing about that, that group of writers was, you know, there's the there's not a sense of competition, there's a sense of support and education. And they were there to say, you know, yeah, this is what you do, this is how you go about it, you know. And they, they were willing to sort of take you step by step through the process and, you know, offer workshops about this is, you know, this is how you are a writer, this is, this is how you become better at what you do. And, um, and they brought in also writers from all, all genres all across the board. So you were learning this broad swath of uh, stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I, it just, I was just very lucky sort of every step of the way. And it was my grandmother, honestly, who you know, said, <clears throat> join a group. That's what you need to do, join a group. you know. And, uh, and I did, and, you know, I met people like Jane Ann Krentz and Christina Dodd and Kristen Hanna, um, and they became sort of my tribe, you know, okay. and yeah, and that was, it was, that was it. That's, you know, I went to those conferences. That's how I met, you know, the agents I ended up with. That's how I met the editors I ended up with it. You know, it was just, it was just a great experience. Um, I'm fascinated by your books because on the one hand, you're very pragmatic about getting 
things published, you're going a genre approach, but then from your very first book, you're putting your own twist on it by setting a book in Panama and things like, and it's not the traditional romance setting, or, I mean, you always add these things that are you into your stories. So yeah. I imagine Alcoholic that. Alcoholic and a prostitute, yeah, <laughs> in Panama. Yeah, I'm always a square peg in a, in a round hole. I don't really know how that happens. Um, I don't know. I, um, I, I am not good at being told what to do, you know, <laughs> I guess, ultimately, I have a, a I guess for me, um, in romance, what I found most interesting were people who, for whom love was the uh, darkest thing, that people who were, for whom that kind of vulnerability was the hardest thing to face, was, you know, they were, they were that damaged, they were that um, vulnerable you know, and I found that interesting. And I think ultimately, uh, what I find uh, interesting are people who are, for whom uh, they're forced to make certain decisions because of the lives that they have lived. And now they have to live with the consequences of those decisions. I find that fascinating, you know, and, and I think that lends maybe a, a darker edge to the stuff that I do. And um, I I just can't help it. I try, I try, I try. But that's an interesting bridge to your new book, A Dangerous Education, because it is about someone who's forced to come to terms with the decision they made years ago. What can you tell us about your new book? Well, my new book is about a, a woman who uh, ends up taking a job in a school for uh, wayward girls of influential families and discovers when she takes a job there that one of those girls is the child that she gave up for adoption years ago. And, um, and sort of what happens after that. And this is in the 1950s um, during McCarthyism and um, you know when it was very strictured. If you didn't sort of teach the curriculum that you were supposed to teach, if you didn't toe the line of what a woman was supposed to be, you, know, you were considered to be anti-American. And that, you know, led to being investigated or, you know, uh, or being put on a communist list. So, um, and I just found that juxtaposition um, really interesting. Like, you know, what would you do in that situation? You know, you're forced to teach a certain thing. Your daughter is there and you are there because of the consequences of decisions that you didn't want to make, you know. And I just found that whole thing really fascinating. It is. It's such a rich and textured book. You bring in so many different things. Um, the setting itself is fascinating, the 1950s. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I think I have it here. You had been quoted as saying, research is really where the plot of the story begins for me. So can you tell us about some of the different sources you used to research the 1950s and maybe what surprised you as you were doing research the most about this period that you didn't know? Well, you know, I guess part of it for me was uh, I, I have set most of my books in the 19th century mm -hmm. and I was kind of feeling, um, uh, you know, 
I can, I can, I've always had, a, I have a lot of other stories I could write in the 19th century, but I was kind of feeling like a need to stretch my wings a little bit. And actually it was Jane Ann Krentz who said, you know, I think you should look at the 1950s because it seems to me that the same things that interest you about the 19th century and women's stories and the constraints that were put on women are still there in the 50s. There were parallels there. And I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. And my agent kind of said the same thing. And I couldn't like ignore both of them, you know? <laughs> so, um, so I started sort of looking into it and the whole, uh, the Cold War and McCarthyism. And that, that was all very interesting. And then I had discovered that in Seattle in, you know, 1948, 49, we had um, the Canwell Committee, which sort of pre, you know, Pre, was a precursor to McCarthyism, which I hadn't known. It was the Washington State Legislature had their own un-American committee, and they went after the University of Washington, which was considered to be a hotbed of communism. And they destroyed people. I mean, they destroyed three teachers. They destroyed the Seattle Repertory Theater. You know, they, they destroyed these people. And and I thought, okay, that's super interesting because certainly in the 19, you know, early 20th century, Washington was known as like the little Soviet Union by sort of the rest of the country because we were also a hotbed of socialism and communism and unionism and all this other kind of isms, you know. And so that was really fascinating to me. And, you know, you look at that at the same time that, you know, Washington was the, the home of Hanford, which was part of the Manhattan Project. And we had all these shipyards and we had Boeing. So we were also the target of, would have been the target of any sort of Soviet aggression. So it was just, just all these interesting sort of, um, you know, uh, things that sort of came together for me. And then I was reading a science uh, news uh, magazine about uh, fetal, fetal maternal uh, microchimerism, which was this idea that they recently discovered that um, when women are pregnant, uh, cells from the, from the fetus go back and forth. Mother, mother and fetal cells go back and forth between, uh, past the placenta. And it doesn't matter if a woman has carried a child to term or not, those cells stay in a woman's body for the rest of her life. And they don't know why. They don't know why they're there. They think maybe it's, um, it's the child trying, the cells of the child trying to keep the mother's organs healthy while the child is in utero. But, and sometimes those cells may contribute to autoimmune diseases after the child is gone but they've found them in like women's brain cells when they're in their nineties. So they just mm. never go away. Yeah. And I, of course, because the way my brain works immediately think, wow, quantum physics and entanglement theory, you know, like once two cell, once two particles are entwined or entangled, they are never unentangled. So like when one cell or when one particle does something, no matter where the other particle is, it has a, it, it, it reacts to that simultaneously. And I thought that's such an interesting idea. Like it explains 
women's weird clairvoyance sometimes when it comes to their children, you know? And then I thought, what about, what would that mean for women who give up children for adoption? And I started reading this book um, called The, the um, Girls Who Went Away by Anne Fester. And she was talking about the, the women who gave up children for adoption in the 50s through the 70s, maybe in the, I think even into the 40s. That was what happened when you got pregnant out of, you know, and you weren't married. You went away to an unwed mother's home and you just disappeared. And then you gave up the child for adoption. And many of these adoptions were forced. They were women who didn't want to give up their children. And many of these women, um, for them, it was a hugely traumatic experience. And they experienced post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome for the rest of their lives. Mm. And I sort of was thinking in terms of entanglement. Mm. Like, you know, they would have... Um, migraines on certain dates or they would have physical reactions to things that they didn't know and I'm like what if they're reacting to something their kid is going through and they don't know um. and anyway all those things sort of <laughs> coalesced in this and then I discovered that there was a juvenile detention home for girls in Seattle that was run by the state uh, for a while um, in this in this place that's now a park in um, South Seattle, and um, and now it's said to be haunted by the spirits of the girls who were in that school. Anyway, it all came together <laughs> in this weird kind of way, in this way that my mind works. And I, I was just um, kind of fascinated by all that, part, partially because when I was in junior high, I think especially, um, I, there were those girls who went away. You know, we all knew it and we all knew where they went. Yeah, before um, the 1970s, there really wasn't options for a single woman. I mean, you could, the few, I guess, tried to write out the shame, but your life could be destroyed if you had an unwanted pregnancy. Yeah, and this even was, this would have been, this was the early 70s, yeah. you know, when this was, when I was experiencing this and, you know, we all knew it. And uh, so it was just, these were just things that were fascinating to me. And, and when I was trying to figure out what, as a teacher, because Rosemary would have had um, so few options um, as a woman for a profession, nursing would have been one of them, teaching would have been another. And I thought home ec would have been a, a fun irony, you know? Mm -hmm. And I started looking into home ec curriculum and sex ed would have been part of home ec at that time. And, um, and I started looking into what the sex education curriculum was at that time. And I just, oh my God, I, I just could not bear it. It was, I mean, some of the discussion was, you know, they were talking about gonorrhea and they would just talk about it in terms of, uh, this is one of the, you know, it, you would get, you know, if you don't do this, you get into trouble. And gonorrhea was one of those things. And that was the most discussion they would have. It's ironic because they're so concerned about women not falling into the trap of having unwanted pregnancy, yet they don't want teens and adolescents knowing 
the effective ways to avoid that situation. Yes, it's it's horrible. And in fact, it's horrible because they don't give them the information to avoid the situation. Mm -hmm. So it would be stuff like advice, like when boys start to get too affectionate, it's up to the girls to stop it, you know, mm -hmm. but they don't give them the tools to even know what too affectionate is, yeah. you know, and it, I, it was just sort of more than I could bear. And I just began to sort of see parallels uh, to today. And um, I just, uh, it, it was just, it was pretty fascinating to me, you know. Well, that's why these three girls at the school gravitate towards Rosemary, because she's actually honest with them. She right. She tell them the truth about things. Right, right. And that was, to me, I mean, I would think that be to be true about any adolescent kid, Um would gravitate toward any teacher who told them the truth about any kind of aspect of life at all, you know, because you're so confused at that stage and you're so, um, you want information, you want to know the truth about what's going on in your life. And the worst thing that I think you can possibly do is not tell somebody when they're asking a question what they want the answer to, you know, what the answer is. Um, and so, you know, it, it just, uh, you know, she's, and at the same time, she's forbidden by the school and by society to give these, these answers, you know, so that's her conundrum, you know, what do you do? One of the other fascinating things she mentioned, she's a home, she teaches home economics, and it is the 1950s, and there's this whole threat of nuclear war. Um, I had no idea that well, I guess it's possible that they were actually teaching people how you survive in home economics after a bomb drops or something yes. like that. That that was actually a, pamph a pamphlet, a booklet that was distributed by the civil defense, um, um, by civil federal civil defense, how to survive a, a, a nuclear bomb. And you know, they know full well that you can't, but their job, of course, is to to calm the public. So here they are, you know, build a bomb shot. And, and my favorite one was go in the basement and you can erect cardboard walls, you know, and that's going to protect <laughs> you. And, you know, it, it, it was, it's just ludicrous. But yes, that, that kind of stuff was, the stuff in the book was taken directly from a civil defense uh, booklet that I had that was distributed to schools for, to teach curriculum. Hmm. You know? So, and that was just, you know, I mean, I'm of the age, right? Where I remember mm -hmm. doing the- um, Deck and cover. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. Um, you have this fascinating plot that you're kind of unwinding as an author, and then you add this other layer in. Um, I don't know, maybe it was just circumstance or happy coincidence, but there's been this recent kind of trend in publishing from readers for books I guess they're called dark academics or dark academia. Uh, yeah, where it's set in a university or a school setting and there's danger and intrigue. And you bring that into the story too. Is that just, you knew you wanted to do that or that just kind of fell into the story? Well, you know, I um, what I wanted for the book was I have, I wanted it to be to have the same tone as something like Picnic at Hanging Rock or The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. You know, I wanted 
that sort of um, sense of adolescence gone haywire and in a, in a kind of terrifying way, because what I see a lot is that sense of, um, I feel like kids in adolescence are really just on the edge and but for one step, it's just so easy for them to go over the edge. And I think in the world today where you're seeing a lot of this, you know, um, uh, opiate overdosing and all that kind of stuff and, and kids sort of desperately searching for something. And I think that's always been true. And I just think the things that are available for them to cert get into now are worse. Um, and that may in fact be a little bit why dark academia is becoming a thing, you know, but I'm not sure so much that um, I searched it out um, so much as that was just really the feel I wanted. I wanted that sense of kind of a train wreck happening um, because these girls were were desperate, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, they are there not for bad things. I mean, none of them murdered him. Yeah, you know. it's uh, shoplifting and all these yeah. other petty yeah. crimes and stuff. Yeah, it's just that as girls, you know, they're brought under control, under strict control, very early on, and um, you know, and I think it's like that, you know, sense of being in a small box and you just can't get out. And you know, it, I wrote years ago. I wrote a book um, set during the Salem witch trials. And it was the same thing for those girls. They had no other out. They were servant girls. They were not rich. They had no future and they knew it. And I think that that, that sense of desperation sort of sets in. Um, and that was, so I just feel lucky that it, <laughs> that it landed in dark academia. But. Um, let's talk a little bit about your writing process now. Um, if I understand correctly, this may have changed, but you've also been known to say that you like to cast actors or models as your characters before you yeah, start to write. I do. It, you know, I sort of, when I'm writing a book, it, I, I've seen it in my head like a movie. And um, it helps if I have um, actors to sort of play those parts for me. So, so my office tends to look like, you know, the bedroom of a 16 year old girl. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have pictures up everywhere and in, you know, around my computer. So, yeah. So once you have it cast and once you have the setting as a writer, are you the kind of structured writer that knows everything in advance or do you just have to start and see where it takes you? Well, you know, I've reached a point now where, um, I have to have a synopsis in place. My agent kind of insists upon it, you know? So I have a synopsis. I don't always follow it, um, you know, uh, but, but I do kind of have to know where I'm going. But generally what that means is I know where I have to be at a quarter point, a halfway point, a three quarter point. I don't always know the ending. And so, Within that, I'm very flexible. Like, I don't know necessarily how I'm going to get to any of those places. I just know that's where I have to be. So it's sort of a combination of planning and, you know, being very flexible within that plan. Yeah, so in, addition, in addition to writing, you also teach writing. Um, 
what do you think is the most important thing, the first thing you try to convey to aspiring writers if you have them in a class? The first thing is that uh, I think it's important to realize that what you're trying to do when you're writing is you're trying to create an illusion and you're trying to put the reader in that illusion, which means that anything you do that takes them out of it is a mistake, anything. And sometimes the illusion of reality is, is, is more important than reality itself, which means that this idea of, well, the truth, what really happened is not a defense, right? Because if the reader doesn't believe it, it doesn't matter. They have to believe it. And so, for example, you know, I in in uh, the 19th century, it was really popular for the upper class to speak like illiterates. You know, they didn't speak the way that we, you know, portray them, you know, in literature. They spoke with a lot of ain'ts and a lot of, you know, just they it was popular. It was slang. But if you put that in a book, nobody believes it because they that's not how we perceive that the upper class spoke. So that's not the reality, but it's the illusion of reality. And that's what we want. So, you know, that's sometimes the truth is not your friend. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's very interesting. Um, what is the best piece of advice about writing you've ever received? Probably the best piece of advice, oh, best piece of advice I've ever received. Honestly, I think it was probably my grandmother's advice, which was join the group. Wow. You know? And I think that's a that's a that's a that's a kind of advice you have to be careful of because sometimes groups can really, really mess you up. But I think what's important is to find your tribe, even if that's one other person, because this business can like tear your heart out. Mm -hmm. And it does it not just once, it does it over and over and over again. And what you really need are people there to say, hey, it's okay. You know, you know, this is the business we have chosen, right? So, you know, it's all right, you know. You've done, you know, look, I have the best job in the world, right? I get to sit here and tell myself stories all day, you know? And, um, and that's what you have to remember is that I think ultimately it's the process that matters. It's what, why you're doing it. You know, I do it because I love to tell myself stories. And if I wasn't published again, would I still be doing it? Yes, because that's what I do. It's what I've always done. You know, and I think that's what you have to ask yourself, you know, why am I doing this? And, um, you know, and and proceed accordingly. I think you're right. Um, it's important to have a group or a person or however many number of people that you can turn to. But it is a double edged sword because you have to know when to take advice and when the advice is not right for you as a writer. Right. Because you know what, everybody has a different process. I'm telling that to people in my in my um, when I teach writing all the time. You know what works for you is what works for you, and whatever anybody else says doesn't matter. 
it just doesn't matter. You know, if, if, if you write best by just sitting down and writing and you don't need a synopsis, do it. If, you know, if it, if you need to be telling a story to someone, tell it to somebody, you know, it just doesn't matter. Whatever works is what works for you and do it, you know. There's been a lot of talk over the last um, decade or so about from publishers, from um, people in the business about writers and their brands, their literary brands, which I, to me is their voice, um, how they tell the story. How would you describe your, your brand, your voice? Well, you know, that's interesting because I never kind of write the same thing twice. You don't, but I think that's one of that's one of the hallmarks of your work is the unexpectedness. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's not a familiarity with your, you can't say that's something I expect. You're always right. surprised. Right. I guess, um, I guess that's, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons I am, I think, difficult to brand necessarily, yeah. but uh, Hmm. You know, I I like to if I had to say something about it, I what I want to do is make people think, right? I mean, I'm I'm more I'm interested in telling a story that engages you and involves you and that you can't put down, but I want you to think about it. You know, I want you at the end to like be asking questions. And um and that kind of is kind of important to me. You know, I want you to be able to look at people differently. Um, you know, like someone once asked me what I learned uh, from writing. And to me, the answer was tolerance. Hmm. You know, I like, you know, that everybody has a story and everybody has a reason for doing the things they do. And sometimes the decisions they have made are ones that they are locked into for reasons you don't know. And, and so I think it's important to understand that whatever decisions they make, they still have to live with the consequences of those. And they may not have anything to do with what you think they have to do with. So, um, and that's kind of some of the things I'm trying to get across is that that and, you know, whenever society tries to lock people down, you know, we lose. We lose every time. Um, and, and I think the loss the things that we're losing are incalculable. And um, and so I think those are the themes I'm often trying to get across, um, you know, in my, in my writing. Well, there's a, there's a definite depth to your writing and a richness, and that's part of, I think, your stories. And there are, there are books that you read just sheer for the momentum, like Jurassic Park. You're not looking yeah. for depth or anything. You're looking to be told a story and you want it to go by quickly, but you're kind of the opposite. There's always those layers that you're putting in. Well, thank you. I hope so. That's kind of what I'm going for. <laughs> um, you've been publishing and writing for quite a while now. What has surprised you the most about the business of publishing? What did you not expect when you were starting out years ago? You know, what I didn't expect was that it could be so um, personal and yet so um, business at the same time. It's a weird, it's a weird business. There's nothing like it. I mean, it's like you just keep telling yourself, you know, it's a business. It's a business. It's about making money. But there is like a real personal aspect to it, too, because everything about publishing is also so subjective. 
You know, it's like, do, does somebody like the book? Um, you know, but it's also about, do they like you? Are you easy to work with? Are you hard to work with? Are you, you know, are you a jerk, you know? And um, so it's not just about making money. It's also, there is this aspect of art about it that um, sometimes gets in the way. So I just, I guess I never expected the two things to be so intertwined. I thought it would be more about art, I guess, and less about making money and marketing. And as the years have gone on, it has become more and more about making money and marketing. And yet it hasn't quite lost that little nagging art, you know, personal thing. And so you never quite have your um, balance, you know, you're always, you know, you're, you're always like walking on eggshells. I don't really know what the reason is for some of the decisions that they make. Yeah, that's, sometimes that's, you don't. Yeah. 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 I mean, a publishing firm can go through something that's totally unrelated and it can, it's like um, a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere. Yeah. It affects your book. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And they don't, you know, it, it never, it doesn't matter, you know, like, for example, you know, a, a uh, ocean liner overturns in the ocean and loses, you know, whatever, how many copies of your book and three years later, what they're saying is, well, your book didn't sell very well, you know, uh, and, and they totally have <laughs> forgotten that the ocean liner overturned in the ocean, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of thing that just blows my mind so I don't know it's a weird it's a weird yeah you, know, you have to be tough if you want to be a writer I think that's yeah yeah that's result. very true um in addition to being um a great writer you're also a wonderful reader I'm always fascinated by the books that you share with others um are there any titles that you absolutely love that you like to share are there books that you're looking forward to in 2023 I you know I read uh things that I've read recently that I really loved were The Whalebone Theater by uh, Joanna Quinn. Um, I really loved that. Um, I, uh, I also just read that Age of, um, Age of Vice um, by Deepit yeah. Kapoor, um, which is weird because I don't really read thrillers very much. And But this was set in India and I kind of have a thing for India. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> And that book, you know, I could not put that book down. Um, at the same time, I was like, oh, this is icky. <laughs> you know? um, and that's supposed to be a trilogy. So, um, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to the rest of that. I also, I'm looking forward to Rebecca Mackay's new book that I have some questions for you. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm also looking forward to... Um, Eleanor uh, Catton, I think that's how you say her last name, the Burnham Wood book she wrote, The Luminaries, back in, Oh, yeah. you know, um, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, so uh, I, I, am, I am a voracious reader. I probably read one or two books uh, a week, you know, and um, so those, you know, uh, what did I just finish? <laughs> yeah, I've gone completely blank. <laughs> but, but yes, I, uh, yes, I, I love to read and I'm a very weirdly eclectic reader too. I almost, I almost never read like what the big it books are. So um, I just, I don't know. I'm a weird mm -hmm. reader. 
Um, before we go, is there anything you can tell us if you'd like about what's next for you as a writer? I just uh, sold a new book. So oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I It's set in, again, in the 1950s. And this one's set in Hollywood oh. with a costume designer and um, who... Uh, it's about a costume designer and about stolen identities and about the CIA and their um, their propaganda, their their cultural war against uh, the Soviets and movies. So it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it, I can't wait to read it. I sound sounds fascinating. Well, I hope so. I hope it is fascinating. Are you familiar at all with? I think there's a couple of authors up your way. Renee Patrick is there. No, I don't know Renee Patrick. Um, it's a husband and wife, and I'm blanking on their real names, but they write a mystery series set in 1930s, 1940s Hollywood with Edith Head. As oh, no, well, obviously my costume designer gets to be based on Edith Head, but no, I'll have to check that out. Huh? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're fabulous um, books. That's oh. just wonderful. I, well, I'm going to be counting the days until that book comes out. How can readers learn more about you? Are you on social media? I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And I have a website, which is www.meganchance.com. And that has links to all of my social media sites, too. Oh, great. Well, I can't believe how quickly we've just flown by <laughs> our time here. Um, the Poison Pen's special guest author has been Megan Chance. Her new book is A Dangerous Education. I want to thank Megan for taking time to stop by virtually and visit. And for those tuning in, thank you for joining another recorded author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.